1: This evening, we'll conclude the Sila section of the Eightfold Path, discussing the next steps of right action and right livelihood. As with right speech, we cultivate these steps not only for their harmonizing influence in our lives, but as an essential means for awakening. It's impossible to separate meditative wisdom from the moral understanding that makes it possible. Now when the Buddha expressed this integrated path in one well-known verse of the Dhammapada where he said, avoid what is unskillful, do what is good, and purify the mind. So especially in times like these, where there are great cultural changes and there's often a useful questioning you know, of cultural norms and values, the importance of personal integrity and responsibility needs to be continually rearticulated, so we don't simply get lost in the confusion of our own desires and impulses. It said that what most moved the Buddha to teach after his enlightenment was as he surveyed the world with his eye of wisdom, he saw people seeking happiness, wanting happiness, and yet doing the very things that cause suffering. Now in Shantideva, he expressed this so well He said, We're like senseless children who shrink from suffering but love its causes. So we need to really re articulate and examine and explore the moral foundation that makes happiness possible. So, although these three steps of right speech, right action, and right livelihood, all revolve around abstinence from doing unskillful things each one also contains its own positive expression that is doing what is good so right action is cultivating that clarity and strength of mind to abstain from the actions of the body which cause harm to oneself or to others So this is how the Buddha explained it. And what is right action? Abstaining from taking life. Abstaining from stealing. Abstaining from sexual misconduct. Now so much of what the Buddha taught seems so obvious. It's almost as if he is speaking to children. Don't kill. Don't steal don't harm others it seems so clear and so obvious that this is the proper way to live still as we try to apply and practice these precepts in our lives we can really come to the forward edge of our understanding of them and our commitment to them and this edge is a challenging place to be. And one teacher commented that if practicing the precepts doesn't make us uncomfortable, there's probably room to grow. And I really appreciate that, because it points to these steps on the path as actual practice. Things to understand, things to investigate, to explore in our lives rather than taking it for granted that we're basically good people and then looking no further. So the first part of right action is abstaining from killing or physically harming other beings or ourselves. And this includes, obviously, people not killing people, not killing animals, particularly for sport or pleasure not killing things because we don't like the way they look. I had a striking example of this in my early days in India, where I was living up in the mountains during the hot summer months in a quite primitive cottage. Uh, There was no running water and no plumbing, nothing like that. And the house was pretty porous to living beings. And there were these huge spiders Big hairy spiders that just lived on the ceiling of my bedroom. They were pretty big. Now, I'm trying to get right, not right speech here, <laughs> right demonstration. <laughs> but they were pretty big. And at first, I looked at, oh my god, <laughs> I'm going to be sleeping with these things. But there was really not much to do. You know, I didn't want to kill them, and I wasn't going to kill them. And I didn't see any way of putting them outside in such a way that they wouldn't come back in. And what happened is I learned it was fine that they were there. You know, they were on the ceiling and that was their home. And I was hanging around on the floor and on the bed and that was my home. And there was no need, you know, to do what we so often do in the West. Is You know, there's something we don't like. We don't like the way it looks. We take out our you know, spray can of Raid, you know, and just kill it. We can refrain from that. When we're killing things, or harming, it creates the ultimate alienation and separation from other beings. You know, we really have this intent to harm. And so this part of the path is learning how to relate to other forms of life as fellow living beings, you know each one with a desire to continue their life, there's a wonderful book which I read years ago uh, it 's called "Kinship with All Life" by J Allen Boone and it 's this wonderful story of this man who had just a great uh, empathetic telepathic communication with animals and the stories he told of the communication both between animals and between himself and animals. And there were a lot of stories about this one particular dog where that was happening, which, you know, it's not so hard to relate to. But he also told this incredible story of this telepathic connection with a fly. And he could call the fly to land on his finger, just to mind-to-mind connection. I don't exactly know how he knew it was the same fly each time, <laughs> but whenever he did it, a fly landed <laughs> anyway. It's just a very moving book, you know, and it, it highlighted the fact that in some fundamental way, you know, we we all share life in common. So again, these are Bu- the Buddha's words on right action. Here, someone avoids the taking of life and abstains from it. Without stick or sword, conscientious, full of sympathy, one is desirous of the welfare of all sentient beings. So there are important consequences as we practice this aspect of the path. You know, When we're conscientious and mindful refraining from taking life even if it's something small you know like a fly or a mosquito or an insect an ant in those moments when we're really refraining from taking life we are desirous of the welfare of that being we're making a connection you know and we know it feels so much better more connected more loving to remove an insect from the house and put it outside rather than kill it. So as we practice this step on the path, you know, we find the feelings of metta, the feelings of compassion, become stronger and stronger within us. Living in the world, though, as lay people, sometimes we are really confronted with genuine, genuinely difficult choices. You know what do we do about malaria carrying mosquitoes? What do we do about carpenter ants that are eating up your house? What do we do about the deer tick? You know that's burrowed into our skin. Do we just say mm, be happy? Eat away. No, sometimes we're really faced with you know, an, an ethical choice, a difficult ethical choice. Or do we kill in those circumstances with an understanding that it's for some greater good? But a lot of awareness is needed here because the idea of a greater good has rationalized a lot of harmful actions in the world and over time. So we really need to look, to be awake, to be conscious, you know, and to be very considered in any act where we might be taking life. At other times, if we're not mindful of this step on the path, uh, we can easily delude ourselves and think in some way that killing is a good idea. And i had a very vivid example of this uh, when i was training in the peace corps so this goes back to the 60s we were training to be english teachers but for some reason as part of our training they thought we should know how to kill chickens so there we were in hawaii in, in the big island ypo valley you know we had two weeks of our training there and so that's what we were supposed to do and i remember at the time and this is really an expression of a very diluted mind state yeah i'm a man i should be able to do this you know even though there was kind of an inner uh, revulsion about it i was kind of talking myself into yeah this is this is a manly thing to do yeah and I have this picture of having just you know chopped the chicken's head off, standing there with a big grin in my face, holding this scorny chicken as if you know, look what I just did, and I felt so proud. well, some years later, when I was in India practicing, all of this came back to my mind, you know and so vividly, with so much remorse, you know and a real conscious appreciation of what I had done. I basically just murdered this being. You know, but it was so both painful to re-experience it, but also very freeing to see the movement of my mind from the state of delusion at the time to a state of greater awareness. You know, and it showed me the power of delusion. We just We don't see things clearly. So keep in mind that this step on the path, abstinence of killing, from killing, refers to volitional actions where there is an intention to take life because there are some situations where we inadvertently take life. You know, and there's no intention there to kill and this is not considered breaking a precept and one of the stories from the buddhist texts is there was a blind arhant you know fully enlightened beings who was doing walking meditation and stepping on ants and killing them you know as he was walking back and forth and the other monks couldn't understand how could an arhant possibly kill so they went to the buddha and the Buddha explained, and it seems fairly obvious you know, that in that situation there's no intention, there's no volition in killing. And so there was nothing unwholesome in the Arhant's mind. So as we examine the deeper implications of this step on the path, it can also lead to more subtle ways of understanding the Buddha's teachings. Now, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's the great scholar and translator, he points out that acts of killing can be driven or motivated either by greed, by hatred, or by delusion. And he says that killing by hatred is the most serious, particularly if it's premeditated, because a lot of intense mind moments have gone into thinking about it, planning it, carrying it out. So this is just a reminder that the karma, and in this case the unwholesome karma, is always proportional to the fourth force and strength of the defilements. So we need to w- watch our minds and see, you know, is, this, is there a lot of strength and intensity to the defilement in the mind that's giving rise to the action? And later teachings go on and expand this understanding even further, where it talks about the consequences of an act are also conditioned by the moral quality of the actor and the recipient of the act. So for example, and this is to take the more positive side, in an act of generosity, the consequences, the karmic consequences of that are governed by the motivation of the gift, the giver, but also by the purity of the receiver. And so therefore it was said, you know, if there had been an opportunity to give something to the Buddha or the sangha of enlightened nuns and monks, that was of inestimable value because the recipient were so pure. So it's not that an act of generosity or a harmful, an act of killing, has some absolute karmic consequence. Rather, the karmic fruits of actions are always conditioned by various factors, including the intensity and the duration of the defilements or the wholesome motivations, and the purity of both the actor and the recipient. So, the reason I'm speaking about all this you know, and just kind of expanding our view of what right action means and the consequences of it, even rather sketchily, is not to engender a particular belief, you know, but rather to just encourage our own exploration. of what happens in the performance of a harmful action, what happens in the performance of a skillful action. As the Buddha said in the Kamala Sutta, he said, don't believe anything just because I've said it, or because other teachers have said it, or because it's written in the books, or because it's in the tradition. Always take the teaching and put it into practice. And then we should see for ourselves, does this practice lead to more wholesome states of mind? Does it lead to more unwholesome states of mind? So in this way, our whole practice of the teachings is not ever a question of blind belief. It's always a question of investigating and discovering for ourselves. What is the cause of happiness? What is the cause of suffering? Okay, so there's one last aspect of this abstinence from killing. And I came across this in an article by Barbara Gates in The Inquiring Mind. And it just struck me as just another take on how we can understand this step on the path. So she wrote, a teaching came back to me that I heard many years ago. Zen teacher Reb Anderson examined the first precept not to kill from a koan-like perspective. As he phrased it, life is not killed. What is it not to kill? When you meet a sentient being, to give complete attention to that sentient being, to be totally devoted to your friends, to your family, to your dog, That is not to kill, and that is what life is. And Barbara goes on, The not killing Reb is talking about, offering complete attention, is supremely challenging. That's why we sit on the meditation cushion, training ourselves to stay present, rewiring the circuitry of the brain. That's why we regularly take the precepts, reminding ourselves of the commitment to offer our attention as we fumble along, trying, forgetting, and trying again. I thought that was a useful expansion of understanding what not killing means. That we give full attention to who we're with. We're not killing life. So, the second aspect of right action is abstaining from stealing, from taking, abstaining from taking what is not given. So, we see the importance of this just in society and in our interpersonal relationships. Now, how this precept, this abstinence of not stealing creates a refuge of safety you know, in a place like this, where everyone is committed to this precept, where we value it as a community, somebody could leave a large amount of money lying about, and it would just stay there. You know, it would be returned maybe to the office. And this feeling of protection, this feeling of safety that we create by our commitment to this step on the path, is of huge benefit to us personally and to society. When we first opened IMS in people, this was back in the 70s, people would come from New York and Boston and particularly the big cities. Often they wanted to lock their rooms. Of course, we didn't have any keys. (laughs) But it was such a foreign notion, you know, that that you could live someplace and not lock your room, lock your things up. And so the power of what's created here, you know, is really quite beautiful. We can see the tremendous impact and power of this step on the path when we look at the social and economic devastation caused by people not committed to it. Years ago, uh, several years ago, I saw this documentary called The Smartest Guys in the Room. And it was a powerful film about the Enron scandal. I don't know whether you remember that from some years ago, but it was this huge corporate meltdown. And the people at the top, the smartest guys in the room, were just willfully uh, manipulating. Uh, they, they were manipulating uh, the energy sources for Californians' electricity and doing all kinds of things just to make money and in the end, economically destroying thousands and thousands of people. You know, where, where people's livelihood, livelihood and savings were completely destroyed. And we see it today. You know, it's, when we look at the economic crisis that's happening now, you know, and the whole Madoff scheme and the banking crisis, what is it? You know, what, what is the underlying cause of that? It's all based on excessive greed, you know, and deception. And there are tremendous consequences for millions of people. This is not a small thing. We may not be grand thieves on that order, but I think it's helpful for us to look at our lives and see how perhaps in smaller ways or even quite small ways, uh, we fudge things a bit, you know, where we do take things that are not offered. You know, have, ever, have we ever gone through customs and just not declared some of the things we've bought? You know, or there are lots of examples. As with lies of omission in right speech, sometimes stealing can be an act of omission. And again, I had just a very striking example of this. It goes back years when I was just coming back to America uh, after the Peace Corps. And I stopped, on my way back, I stopped in Nepal. And I did a day hike, up to a place called Nagar which is a day's walk. And from that place, you can see Mount Everest, you know. And at that time, there was just a very primitive uh, cabin up there for people to sleep over. Um, You know, and there was no heat and very primitive, just a cot and each cot had a couple of blankets on it. So I hiked up, you know, Just enjoyed the beauty and the splendor of the mountains. And then night came and went to sleep, got into bed. And it was pretty cold. And all the beds had two blankets. And it turns out, by some chance, my bed had three blankets on it. But it was still pretty cold. Then later in the night, another person comes into the cabin and there's one bed left, and there's, there's only one blanket on that bed. And I don't know whether it was he or the manager you know, of the place kind of asked, you know, does anybody have an extra blanket? And I'm just lying there, you know, and I'm really cold. <laughs> and when I think back now, I'm really ashamed, <laughs> but I didn't say anything. You know, I just kind of, you know, I didn't ask for the third blanket. It was just on the bed. Of course in retrospect, it was really just an act of stealing, <laughs> of taking what really wasn't offered, you know, and just for my own comfort and well-being. But at the time, our minds can rationalize things like this. You know, I didn't ask for it. It was just on the bed, you know, my good karma, whatever rationalization went through the mind. And it's so interesting, just as we look back on our lives from a perspective of greater awareness, we've all done lots and lots of unskillful things in our lives. It's just part of it. The power of this step on the path and the power of the precepts is that from the time that we take them, from the time that we commit to them, from the time that we actually practice right action, you know, as an essential part of our lives we've established ourselves from that point in sila, in right action. So it's not to kind of feel guilt or, you know, berate oneself for the unskillful things we've done in the past, it's to learn. It's to really learn from them and see, okay, from now, from here, we really practice this step on the path. So, just as the positive side of non-killing is care and loving regard for other beings, the positive expression of non-stealing is contentment, which the Buddha called our greatest wealth. You know, and we see it when there's contentment in the mind, there's not that strong energy of wanting and desiring, we're content. With what we have, and particularly in this time and society of overconsumption, this expression of not stealing you know means not taking more than we need, not using more than we need. And of course this is always a very subjective Evaluation. But we can at least begin to examine our lives from this reference point. Do I really need this? Is this really going to contribute to my happiness? So we become conscious of what we're doing. You now, the step of right action, it means right action. Really evaluating what we're doing, the actions we're taking. So we can bring a lot of consciousness and awareness to this. On this level of right action, of social and environmental awareness, you know, of not killing the planet, not overusing resources, not diminishing other beings, I think it's helpful to contemplate what keeps us complacent about our choices. Because it's so easy just to go on in our lives you know, living out whatever habit patterns we've developed and develop a kind of complacency about it, not pushing the edge. So a couple of months ago, I was invited to contribute an article to a book on global warming. When I got the invitation, my first response was, I don't really have much to contribute about this. You know, I hadn't spent much time thinking about it or reflecting on it, or even seriously considering what I could do about it. But they were kind of pressing me to write something. So as I started thinking about it, what really piqued my interest was, why hadn't I reflected much about it? Here's one of the biggest problems, you know, confronting the planet, and it really, and I was aware of it, obviously, as we all are, but it was very much on the back burner of my mind. It's not something that I was actively engaged with at all. So I became interested in why that was so. And there's one teaching which shed quite a bit of light on this question. And it's a light that illuminates many other areas of our lives as well. And it's a teaching from the 12th century Korean Zen master, Shinul. And he framed his teachings. uh, He called them Sudden Awakening, Gradual Cultivation. So this is what he says, and this is, you know, in the context of Dharma understanding. Although we have awakened to original nature, beginningless habit energies are extremely difficult to remove suddenly. Hindrances are formidable, and habits are deeply ingrained. So how could you neglect gradual cultivation simply because of one moment of awakening? After awakening, you must be constantly on your guard. If deluded thoughts suddenly appear, do not follow after them. Then and only then will your practice reach completion. So how does that apply? I think we've all had moments of sudden awakening to the truth of global warming or racial injustice or the vast inequalities of wealth or whatever the particular issue may be. We've all had these moments of awakening. Yet those moments of awakening and understanding quickly pass. And the beginningless habit energies of forgetfulness, of other desires, of basic ignorance resurface again. So here is where Chanel's emphasis on gradual cultivation is so important. We need to repeatedly remind ourselves of whatever the situation may be, of whatever particular right action is appropriate. It's not enough to awaken for a moment and realize the appropriateness or the truth of it we need to gradually cultivate that awakening, reminding ourselves again and again. And so in some cases, it may mean making the effort to keep ourselves informed so we don't fall back again into the habit of deluded thinking. So what motivates us to make this effort It's precisely the previous steps on the path, you know, as we understand through right view the interconnectedness of all things, and we cultivate thoughts of renunciation, the second step, and thoughts of love and thoughts of compassion, and then we move to speak and act in such a way that minimizes harm and is conducive to the welfare of beings. So right action in this aspect of not stealing and contentment has such a broad application in our lives. There's a nice story about Suzuki Roshi, which I'll just close this section with. During a lecture in which Suzuki Roshi was talking about the precepts, he said, do not steal. When we think we do not possess something, then we want to steal. But actually everything in the world belongs to us, so there is no need to steal. For example, my glasses, my eyeglasses, they're just glasses. They do not belong to me or to you, or they belong to all of us. But you know about my tired old eyes, and so you let me use them. It's just so interesting to see how the deepest understandings of selflessness, of empties, emptiness, of non possessiveness, you know, all those understandings of the more ultimate level, how they play out on the relative level and how we can apply them. That's the meaning of right action, how we apply our understanding. So the last aspect of right action is abstaining from sexual misconduct. And this means different things depending on the particular context of our lives. (coughs) For monks, for nuns, for people on retreat, it means celibacy. It means refraining from sexual activity. But what does it mean for us as lay people when we're living in the world? Thich Han describes it, you know, really beautifully in his discussion of the third precept. So this is some of how he uh, phrases this precept. Aware of the suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I undertake to cultivate responsibility and learn ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families and society. I am determined to preserve the happiness of myself and others. I am determined to respect my commitments and the commitments of others. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse and to prevent couples and families from being broken by sexual misconduct. So it's pretty straightforward. It's important to become conscious and mindful in this area because, as we all know, sexual energy is a tremendously powerful force. You know, newspapers are filled with crimes of passion. You know, how many crimes are committed just out of passion, out of that overwhelming uh, sexual desire? And one of my f- very favorite Burmese English translations was when Saida Upandita was talking about this and he went on for some time just talking on this topic but the translator kind of condensed it all into four words and so the translator kind of just expressed it all by saying lust cracks the brain <laughs> <laughs> It does, as we all know. (laughs) So we need to pay attention, because it has that power. When we do pay careful attention to sexual energy, to the energy of that desire, we can learn a lot about the nature of desire and the energy systems of the body you know and meditation retreats, when you're on meditation, it's a very good time to explore this and to see the impermanence of sexual energy, sexual desire. Because usually, in the throes of this strong feeling, you know when that's when sexual energy, sexual desire is up and strong, we usually understand it in one of two ways, that we either need to express it or suppress it. That Those are usually the, the choices we give ourselves. But with mindfulness, and especially in the context of a retreat, it's possible to feel the force of that desire, to feel the energy, to open to it, and to see that it arises and stays for a while and passes by itself. We don't have to do anything about it. We can just experience it, understand it, see its nature. So when sexual desire arises, really look to see how the mind is relating to it. You know, do we indulge the fantasies because they're pleasant? It's easy to sit for an hour or two You know, lost in pleasant sexual fantasies. There's not a lot of sloth and torpor at that time. You know, we're engaged. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes there's fear of it, you know, fear of being overwhelmed of it. And so it's like we push it away with aversion. Or through practice, can we learn to open to it, to feel it, to experience it with equanimity? Not lost in it, not attached to it, not averse to it we just see it as another aspect of this passing show in meditation you know as the mind gets quieter we begin to experience this whole body as an energy field it's the same energy running through it all And it's just felt and expressed in different ways, depending on where we're focusing our attention. The more we understand the experience of this sexual desire, when it arises on retreat, when we're not acting on it, when we have the time and the interest just to see its nature, then the more mindful we can be off retreat when this desire is strong and we see, is it appropriate to act on it now? Is it not appropriate to act? And so we're not so enslaved by it. We really can understand what is skillful, what is not skillful. And in this way, this area of life as well, which is so powerful, is integrated into our path of awakening. This is also from Thich Nhat Hanh. Responsibility is the key word in the third precept. In a community of practice, if there is no sexual misconduct, if the community practices this precept well, there will be stability and peace. This precept should be practiced by everyone. You respect, support, and protect each other as Dharma brothers and sisters. If you don't practice this precept, you may become irresponsible and create trouble in the community at large. We have all seen this. We refrain from sexual misconduct because we are responsible for the well-being of so many people. If we are irresponsible, we can destroy everything. By practicing this precept, we keep the Sangha beautiful. The practice of the third precept is a strong way of restoring stability and peace in ourselves, in our family, and in our society. So this these are the aspects of right action. Not killing, not stealing, refraining from sexual misconduct. So, the next step on the path is Right Livelihood. So often, we separate our work from our spiritual practice. And yet, the Buddha puts this in a central place on this journey of awakening. As lay lay people, the work we do may occupy more time than anything else in our lives. So this is not just some small sideshow. Right livelihood and understanding it, understanding what it means, is just central to our path because it's central to our lives. Can we begin to relate to livelihood in the context of our highest aspirations? This is what the practice of this step on the path means. You know, with right view, we have an understanding of karma, of what's wholesome and unwholesome. And when we refrain from harmful actions of body and of speech, when we refrain from those actions that cause harm, then we will naturally avoid livelihoods that likewise cause suffering. It just follows as the next step on the path. So the Buddha spoke quite specifically about five livelihoods, five occupations that are obviously unskillful and that we should avoid. So he mentioned trading in weapons and instruments for killing, trading in human beings, buying or selling children or adults, when I read this, I thought, "Oh, that's you know," it seemed pretty foreign from our lives. But then I reflected a bit and remembered reading that actually is more widespread in the world than we might normally be aware of. So it was just something to become cognizant of. You know, avoiding livelihoods involving meat production or slaughter of animals, manufacturing or selling of intoxicants you know, addictive drugs, and avoiding producing or trading in poisons. So all of this seems fairly obvious. And in addition, the Buddha speaks of avoiding livelihoods involving deception, you know, uh, what do you call treachery. These clearly cause harm and suffering to other beings. And they have negative karmic consequences for ourselves. The interesting question for us is to look and examine the positive aspect of right livelihood. You know, we might have some ideal of a life of service as being the highest expression of right livelihood. But it's possible, I think, to create some ideal then feel that we're not really quite living up to it and consequently just ignore the cultivation of this step on the path. So we really have to examine what right livelihood in its positive aspect means for us. We can approach it on a more subtle and integrated level. It's possible to develop an attitude of service in whatever work we do? Are we simply doing a job to support ourselves? You know, Or are we watching the attitudes in our minds as we do our work? You know, do we work with care, with attentiveness, with a genuine desire to be helpful? It's not only what we do, but how we do it. And we've all had interactions with people at different times, you know, who have gone out of their way to be of service, you know, who've really extended themselves to be helpful to us in their jobs. And we know how that makes us feel. It's such a it's such a good feeling of connectedness and and caring. And we've probably had the opposite experience as well you know, when people are particularly unhelpful and uncaring, given or assuming that we're not engaged in a harmful occupation, whatever work we do can be an arena for cultivating generosity and kindness. So we don't have to kind of live up to some great ideal of romantic notion of service, whatever work we're doing. What's the quality of our heart in it? One of my early teachers, Goenkaji, talked about it this way, and he was uh, he was a, a wealthy businessman in India, you know, and also a great teacher. He said, if the intention is to play a useful role in society, in order to support oneself and to help others. Then the work one does is right livelihood. You know, so, again, there's that attitude of help. As we explore this, there are also implications for our relationship to money and to wealth. Now, in some spiritual traditions, as we know, money is seen as just an evil to avoid, or else as something quite apart. From the spiritual path but in Buddhism it's really seen quite differently in the Buddhist teachings wealth rightfully gained is seen as a blessing you know that can be used for the benefit and the welfare of many beings and two of the most prominent lay people mentioned in the in the suttas you know their names come up again and again Avisaka and Anattapindaka, the chief female lay disciple and chief male lay disciple uh, of the Buddha. And they were both stream-enters, well-established in the path. And they used their vast wealth to support the Buddha, the Sangha, the spread of the Dharma, and also to be of help to all those in need. So, there's an appreciation Of how we can use our resources in a very beautiful way. Right livelihood, in its broadest application, can be seen as the expression of bodhicitta, what the Dalai Lama called the kind heart. Whatever work we do can be performed with the noble aspiration. Of benefiting beings. But this takes awareness, this takes practice, so we're not just carried along, you know, in the habits of, oh, I need to get my job done. What's the attitude in our minds, in our hearts, as we're doing our work? Can we be cultivating this sense of service, this attitude of bodhijitta? The practice of right livelihood which is the fifth step on the Noble Eightfold Path, takes this aspiration of bodhicitta and puts it into practice. So I'd just like to close with uh, some things the Dalai Lama wrote, uh, initially quoting the great Indian adept uh, Nagarjuna So the Dalai Lama said, Nagarjuna said, we dwell here to develop our minds with a view to serving others and to be of use to them. And the Dalai Lama goes on, to take responsibility for others gives us the power of a radiant heart, a responsive and heroic heart. I think that's a beautiful expression of what these three steps, the Noble Eightfold Path, do. These steps of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. They are an integral part of this path of liberation.